The material contained in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. You should not act or fail to act on anything based on any of the material contained herein without first consulting with a lawyer. My guests and I strive to ensure accuracy in this podcast, but we do not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any of its contents. Welcome to Food Court, a podcast exploring issues in food and law. I'm your host, Glenford Jameson. I'm a food lawyer in Toronto, and I run GS Jameson & Company, a law firm that services clients in the food sector, including not-for-profits, charities, startups, and small and medium-sized enterprises. So what is Food Court? Well, on this podcast, I'll be speaking with colleagues and professionals about what they do, about how food affects our lives, about food law and policy, and about virtually anything from agricultural production to novel foods to nutrition and digestion. I hope you find the contents of this podcast as interesting as I do, and I welcome you to join in our conversation, where I can be found as at GS Jameson on Twitter or Instagram, or on our website at food.gsjameson.com. Lastly, I ask that you remember that nothing here is meant to be considered legal advice. Thanks for listening. This week on Welcome to the Food Court, we have Dan Coles in from Vancouver, British Columbia, where he's a litigator and tribunal lawyer specializing in alcohol regulation at Owen Bird LLP and writes on alcohol law at bcliquorlaw.com. Today's conversation relates to alcohol reform. Alcohol matters have been in the news cycle in my home province of Ontario relating to the beer store in Quebec and New Brunswick, where there's a Supreme Court of Canada challenge about the constitutionality of transporting alcohol across provincial borders, and in British Columbia, where the province has implemented significant liquor reform. Through our conversation, I learned a lot about what alcohol reform, consultation, and the process might look like elsewhere in the country, excluding Alberta and Quebec, naturally. They play by their own rules. This is a conversation that was historically about Western religious social norms, and has slowly become more about jobs, taxation, and the economy. It's important to examine how the government views the role of the Crown in the sale and dispensation of booze. After all, as Homer Simpson once said, alcohol is the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. More broadly, recording this podcast has also served as a great reminder of how regulated food businesses are and how vulnerable they are to regulatory change. In this episode, we discuss private wine stores in Vancouver, which I have visited and thought of as a remarkable step that Ontario would perhaps consider at some point. They were nicely curated, well-staffed, and created an experience only paralleled by visiting a wine region. Well, with BC's reforms, it appears that those stores have gone from halcyon days to a finite timeline with only the shortest of notice. And it's important for those of us in the food sector to remember that this story can just as easily happen to any other food business elsewhere in the country. Lastly, you're going to want to have a look at the app report, the actual BC Liquor Policy Review. It's a really impressive document. Sure, some will tell you the reforms don't go far enough, or perhaps they go too far. But understand that when I say look at the app report, I'm really urging you to look at how it's compiled. It includes direct tweets to the minister from everyday British Columbians. It contains both compelling anecdotal evidence and statistical analysis. It is far from clinical ministerial reports of days past. 
It's a new breed of consultation, and it's something that stakeholders should consider when thinking about how to make an impact on future consultations on other matters. So if you're from BC, enjoy. This will be right up your alley and will probably affect your daily life. If you're not, consider the bigger picture and how this precedent-setting reform process may alter your approach to future governmental consultations on regulation that may affect your life or business. Here's Dan in studio. Dan, we've been blasted with stories across Canada over the past year. Core challenges, policy experiments, reforms, and fights between private and public sectors. Ignoring that we're in the midst of an election right now, has alcohol ever been as front and center in the Canadian mind as it is currently? The short answer is that no, this is not really new in the Canadian context. I think the casual observer opens their local newspaper and they say, wow, uh, I'm reading so much about liquor reform. I'm reading about court challenges from New Brunswick to Ontario. And this all really seems new and exciting. But the truth is, this is this is part and parcel of the Canadian experience with, with liquor. Uh, you know, in BC, prior to about 1900, uh, the service and sale of liquor just was not really regulated. It was literally the Wild West. You had saloons that were serving liquor 24-7. And as a result of that, you had drunkards in the street just about 24-7. It was 2010, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously that was a problem that was not sustainable forever. And as most Canadians know, in the uh, you know the late teens to the 20s, uh, prohibition took hold across Canada for a couple of years, was not particularly successful. So coming out of the 20s, uh, you had uh, reactionary changes to the laws from the saloons being shut down to the introduction of beer parlors, which were very conservative joints where you had to sit to have a drink. You couldn't walk up to the bar to order uh, a glass of beer. Of course, in BC anyway, that was all that was available up until about 55, 1955. You could just get beer. You know, it costed 10 cents a glass, which is great, but there was no food. There was no entertainment. For the most part, there was no women, and they were pretty uh, solemn places. Uh, you know, that, that aside, people got pretty stinking drunk and there were, there were some problems. Uh, but then from about 55 onwards, there's been gradual series of reforms. And I, and I do mean very gradual. Uh, and all the way along, you've had plebiscites, you've had referendums, you've had various politicians lobbying for uh, women's drinking, um, for the local option, which in BC was a concept where each municipality could decide whether they would be wet or dry, who they would issue liquor licenses to, etc. Uh, in 1985, private liquor stores were introduced in BC for the first time. And yes, now we're seeing in, in 2015 across Canada, uh, litigation and public outcry for more microbreweries or for more domestic uh, production of, of wine and spirits. So that's maybe a long way of answering a question, which is no, this is not particularly new in Canada, this this attention to, to liquor and the way it's made and sold. That's... So you... <laughs> A variety of things. First off, you're telling me that until 1955, there were only places in BC to drink where you could essentially sit quietly and mourn the war dead? <laughs> that, that was uh, pretty much it. And there was a whole bunch of really uh, idiosyncratic nuances to how you could drink. Uh, for example, <clears throat> the beer parlors had to close during dinner time. So they would open around noon, uh, serve until about five or six. And then the government at the time thought, well, to counteract uh, the negative effects of liquor, whereby men spend their whole paycheck, they neglect their families, 
you lose the, the societal benefits of you know, people going home for family for family dinners, they would just close for an hour or two, uh, and then men could come back afterwards. In reality, of course, you binge drink right up until 5 o'clock, go out onto the streets, fight, uh, <laughs> stumble around, maybe cause some property damage, and then come back in at 7 o'clock and drink some more. You know, there were physical barriers um, erected uh, at the time they started letting women into beer parlors so that women and men had to sit separately. Uh, single women certainly weren't welcome. They had to be escorted by uh, by a male companion. There was just a variety of arcane and ineffective uh, ways to govern the way um, people, and by people I mostly mean white men, unfortunately, um, could drink liquor in BC. I really enjoy uh, the legislation in the United States relating to bourbon because it is so wonderfully simple. It comes from uh, laws that were enacted in the 19th century and it's so wonderfully clear that everyone understands it and it's just it's crystal like it just makes sense and then in through the 20th century laws get increasingly complex and hard to understand and uh, unique to certain people in certain situations or once one size fits all in other situations this is such a like a bad social sciences way of constructing liquor regulation. It seems so con- convoluted. There's so many like different stakeholders fighting over this this way of regulating people in in BC in the 20th century. Like that this idea of a beer parlor or or separating people on the basis of gender or whether they're married is well should be shocking. Uh, it's not, but My God. it's the conflation of of social science. And how men and women should interact, uh, and how different classes of individuals. It's a very class-based system. The beer parlor was supposed to be the working man's club, his refuge from the day-to-day struggles in the mine or the mill, and he would come in and have his his draft beer. Beer, of course, the only um, alcoholic beverage available for those thirty years coming out of prohibition until the fifties, and and that interacting with. Um, uh, religious and moral concerns about how liquor should be uh, served and consumed and its effect on society and families. And then you have the political ramifications because, of course, in BC, you know, Victoria had its allegiances to patronage appointments to liquor commissions and board. Uh, and obviously, manufacturers did employ people and they paid taxes and they had their say. The hotel lobby, where most beer parlors were located for a variety of reasons, uh, the hotel spent a lot of money building building the walls and building the separate entrances and, and complying with all these regulations that seem to change every couple of years for that period of time anyway. So <clears throat> it's a perfect uh, melting pot of different uh, concerns and stakeholders pushing and pulling. And as a result, you do get absurd regulations that don't really satisfy anyone and in effect just make drinking uh, sort of a very unpleasant and confusing uh, situation for everyone in BC. The stakeholdership, I guess, is really the one thing that hasn't changed. Um, so I cracked open uh, the YAP report, which was put together by an MLA or MPP uh, to consult the public on what sort of changes they're looking for uh, in the regulatory framework in BC. And the report starts off with, well, British Columbia, a lot's changed since 1986 when we had the World Expo and also for the first time ever allowed imported beer into this province. So this has been an exciting time for for liquor reform and then goes on to his report. That to me is shocking. But what's 
that there's been no change in in roughly 30 years. Uh, but what's equally as interesting, I mean, given what you've said, is they've went from a time where they were reforming alcohol rules on a, a semi-annual basis or term-by-term basis, that really since 1986, it sounds like there hasn't been a whole lot of change in British Columbia. That they sort of settled on a weird set of arcane rules and they just said, deal with it. Yeah, that's right. And to be fair to, to BC, I think this is the this is also part of the Canadian experience. I think most provinces coast to coast have uh, hard to in, to understand uh, Byzantine mazes of, of rules and regulations uh, that confuse consumers and retailers alike. Uh, but as you mentioned, <clears throat> uh, an MLA named John Yap in the fall of 2013, September and October, uh, did by all accounts a very uh, broad investigation and consultation into substantive liquor reform in BC. Now there are naysayers who, uh, like all reforms, say this doesn't go far enough. But but in my view, um, BC should be pretty lucky that that we are now probably a pretty progressive province as far as the rules um, that that govern the sale and, and manufacture of liquor. Uh, the pricing, the taxation is maybe something we can talk about later. But what he did in the fall was was consulted with stakeholders. Uh, with police, with medical professionals, and with consumers, and said, how can we change BC to improve tourism, to improve hospitality, to improve uh, the manufacturing sector, and ultimately make BC a, a place where you can enjoy uh, craft beer, wine, and spirits on a more regular basis. And his report was released in the winter of 2014, and, and as you mentioned, it has a series of recommendations. There were 73. And the BC government has endorsed these recommendations. And if you actually go to the government website, uh, you can see a chart that um, keeps track of the progress of these implementations being recommended. And they're, they're, it's a wide scope. Everything from um, sale of liquor at farmers markets to uh, socially responsible consumer information needs to be available wherever liquor is sold. So it, it appeals to a lot of different stakeholders. I mean, you're being concise, but like the stakeholdership was far broader than I ever considered. I mean, we're talking about uh, insurance companies, unions, essentially anyone who would ever organizationally donate to a political party uh, was there from from the furthest reaches from the furthest reaches of society. I mean, there is an entire section on First Nations, uh, which I thought was really interesting and something that. I'm not sure we'd see here in Ontario, or I don't think there's ever been commissioned in Ontario. Uh, but the the depth of of inquiry over such a short period of time was incredible. So in the Yap report, every few pages, there are tweets to John Yap saying, gee, Mr. Yap, it would be great if BC liquor stores were open right now. It's Sunday at 5.05, and tomorrow is a stat holiday. Or... or my microbrewery is not going to get off the ground unless there are changes to the liquor, the regulatory framework here, uh, which I thought was really incredible as a way to consult. Well, just for any any type of government consultation, it's pretty cutting edge to open it up to emails, to open it up to, to tweets, to social media engagement, in addition to traditional town hall meetings. And of course, you consult with the unions and large manufacturers. You'd expect that from government consultation whenever government chooses to consult. Uh, but we're getting a new Liquor Act um, that has been drafted. It's on the books. We're waiting for the regulations uh, to come into effect. And largely, um, <clears throat> the Act implements 
all of all of the recommendations that came forward from the YAP report, and the YAP report was responsive to consumers and to stakeholders. Now that being said, uh, the the consultation had its confines. The government was not willing to move away from the current model where they can they control the distribution of liquor, they control uh, the sale of liquor largely through the um, the BCLC stores, and the outcome was supposed to be revenue neutral. So we weren't going to see from Mr. Yap recommendations to lower taxes or tariffs or warehousing fees or anything of that nature. So some consumers were a little let down because the reality has been um, liquor prices continue to increase for consumers um, and for retailers. So that's maybe been the most prominent criticism is that BC remains the most expensive province in Canada to consume liquor. But that aside, I think there's been a lot of winners. Well, I read through this thing and it just read like a very sensible report. I was shocked that I, I identified with, with almost everything that was in there. It felt like a, a reasonable path forward. If you're going to accept intervention into, uh, into liquor, then this provided a lot of ways to, to modernize an otherwise archaic system. And like, we feel it, I'm based in Ontario, we feel it here with uh, the liquor store in certain ways and with the beer store and the wine rack that are these weird vestiges of another time as well. It's sort of out of place with today's consumer. So so the YAP report was completed. Where is BC at with it right now? So what they've been doing, Glenn, is right now under the confines of the current act, they've been releasing policies. And these policies are either changes to the regulations or they're just a, a liquor branch policy that dictates how they're going to enforce or how they're going to uh, ad- administer license applications or uh, endorsements to licenses. And most of those policies, of the 73, are already implemented. They're, they're already affecting consumers, they're already affecting bars and restaurants and manufacturers. Uh, some of them will not be able to take effect until the new act that I mentioned comes into force. We expect that will be later this year. Uh, the branch is still consulting on the regulations that, that will bring the act into force. But from a uh, Joe consumer point of view, the changes have been pretty dramatic, and, and you can see them every day. And, and I can give you a couple examples. Uh, liquor at farmer's markets, fantastic change. So when you say liquor at farmer's markets, so you mean so in Ontario, we just adopted a rule last year saying that we could sell local wine at farmer's markets, and that I thought was groundbreaking. When you say liquor, do you mean like, Spirits liquor? I mean ardent spirits. No kidding. Uh, we can do you can do uh, uh, hard liquor. You can do alcohol um, spirits, uh, and you can also do beer. So uh, you know BC, like most of Canada now, is a very farm uh, farmers market friendly culture. They're set up in a lot of neighborhoods. I'm sure you have a lot of experience with that. Uh, so now my neighborhood farmers market that's set up every Saturday morning will often have uh, a microbrewery present with a tent, and they'll be selling uh, canned or bottled beer. Uh, but you'll also see vodka or gin that, that's distilled locally. Uh, BC is 35 distilleries now. Wow. 35 micro distilleries, uh, in, you know, in addition to the 90 or so uh, craft breweries. So there's a lot of craft product being produced, especially in the Lower Mainland, in and around Vancouver. And that's now being available to consumers, not only at liquor stores and bars and restaurants, uh, but at farmer's markets. So, I mean, here's, so I was doing some poking around and I understand that there is a, uh, like essentially an agricultural land trust or what we in Ontario would call a grain belt. Uh, and I understand there's a connection between that and being able to consider yourself a local BC product and then be able to take advantage of some of these regulatory amendments. Is that affected 
are distillers affected in that way as well? So to be able to sell at a uh, at a farmer's market, do I need to source my grain from a BC farmer? You don't actually. Uh, you you need to be a, a craft product. But what does that mean? That's very contentious in like every alcohol distilling zone. There's not a craft beer designation as of yet in BC, although I understand uh, the various industry associations are lobbying for something similar. There is a craft spirits designation, and that's that's probably what you're getting at. Right. And that is where you've got spirits that are distilled in province from 100% local BC grain. So the large portion of the distilleries I mentioned, the 35 or so, are BC craft spirits. Okay. And, and that's using local cereals distilled locally um, into a product. And, and it's mostly clear liquors at this point, although there are a handful of distilleries that, that are, aging, um, are aging whiskey, and I'm pretty excited about how those are going to turn out. Well, that takes time, right? You can't just make bathtub 12-year-old scotch like you used to be able to. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. Uh, well, this is amazing. Okay, so, so you've got a new regulatory framework that's coming into effect We've seen these 73 changes or proposed changes, and they have largely been accepted or adopted, uh, either through regulatory change or through legislative change that's coming down the pipe. Is this YAP report a story of winners and losers in BC? Like, are there people that walked away from this with their head in their hands? There are definitely winners and losers, but I don't think it's that simple. And maybe this is the lawyer in me coming out. It's, Explain that. <laughs> it's more nuanced than that. Uh, the average consumer walks away from the app report as a winner, hands down. The, the change, I mean, introducing a happy hour again in BC, you know, that, that something so simple, and you see it every day after work from four to six, come in for dollar oysters and a $5 glass of wine. Simple change that previously, before the policy change, the liquor price that you set at the start of the day could not change during the day. Now you can have a happy hour. That's fantastic. Now you can go to a Canucks game and you can get a, a you can get a vodka soda. You can get a rum and coke. Previously, outside of uh, the corporate suites, you couldn't have mixed drinks. Day to day changes like that improve the life of consumers. So so that's a win. The Vancouver uh, Stanley Cup riot was unfortunate, but is not being held against consumers. That's great. Yeah, as a someone who comes at liquor reform from more of a Fraser and Niles Crane sort of zone than from a Jersey Shore kind of zone. Right. Uh, that's always my greatest fear is that the acts of some would really prejudice the interests of, you know, me. And Fraser would hate that. You'd be very upset. You'd <laughs> be very upset. Okay, so the consumer is largely coming out ahead. Cold beer, that's important. Uh, happy hours. Uh, as a consumer, what else do I get? I think that microbrew has exploded in the province. I'm not sure if that's a cause of the change in regulation or if that's just a zeitgeist or a spirit of the times thing. The I think that's a bit of a chicken and the egg. So in 2009, there were 49 breweries in BC. Uh, today, they're getting close to 100. And, it's, and it seems like every six weeks, a new brewery is on the books. So that's, that's an explosion of growth. We're not seeing growth in necessarily remote areas. We're seeing it in uh, in urban centers where people can go for a drink after work, or you can go on a Saturday afternoon. You can taste a sampling of of craft products, and you can really enjoy yourself. And why that's possible, Glenn, is because lounge endorsements have been made available to manufacturers. So previously, why would you pay downtown Vancouver warehouse rent 
when no one's coming to your site to drink. And uh, I think I think unfortunately that's common in a lot of jurisdictions where breweries can't uh, host individuals to drink and hang out for a series of hours. You come in, you get your sample beer, and you leave. In Vancouver, that's not the case. Uh, you can you can buy snacks, you can buy food in some of these places, or food trucks will line up out front if they don't have a, a fully functional kitchen. But you can buy pints of beer and you can hang out. And I've experienced Friday night in Vancouver. There are lineups outside of some breweries. They, you know, they they are prospering, and this is this is a response of the government taking notice. In my view, that this is uh, a growing area for uh, for employment. It's a growing area for tourism. It's a growing it's a growing cultural expression uh, that's being uh, rewarded and, and respected in BC, and and that's exciting. And John Yap gets some credit for that. The crazy thing about brewing is that it is such an analog process that it does mean jobs that are local and are specific to wherever the brewery is. Like as in, like one of the things that Yap talks about in his report is this idea of, uh, of really creating jobs as like this, this series of legislative reforms being a tool to stimulate the economy. And I think that's, that's interesting where traditionally it's been a, a tool to deal with man's vices. So consumers ahead, the distillers are ahead, the brewers are ahead, the wineries were already ahead and now continue to to enjoy what they've always enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, there's 250 wineries in BC and that's that encompasses over 900 vineyards. So BC, uh, the first <clears throat> vineyard license was given out sometime in the 70s. And I think in, in Canada anyway, BC is pretty hegemonic as far as quality products it's always been a hub for tourism. The Okanagan Valley, the beautiful, you know, B&Bs and that sort of thing. They've been doing well for a long time. Uh, the reforms help. Uh, recently, it was announced that uh, wineries, breweries, distilleries can sell uh, products not manufactured on site. So previously, if you were doing a wine tour up near Naramata, for example, all that was available to you at each stop along your way was wine. Now you can get a beer. Wow. Now you can you can get a rum and coke. Now you can have a gin and tonic if you like, and that's fantastic for hangers on who are maybe there for the good time but don't necessarily love wine. It's also great for the tertiary business of hosting corporate events, hosting weddings. Again, under the old regime, you'd have to get a special events license in order to bring in liquor not manufactured on site. Now, so long as you're only doing about twenty percent of your business as liquor not made on site. Um, you can you can you can do that. So that's a win. That's a win for everybody. It's a win for consumers. It's a win for manufacturers. So so then, who are the losers here? I mean, who are we left with? So we've got uh, BC is controlling distribution. Uh, consumers are ahead. Producers are ahead. BC is the primary retailer. Although last time I was in Vancouver, you directed me to some pretty fantastic wine shops. I mean, are they impacted by this? Unfortunately, the, the biggest losers of the changes have probably been the non-government-owned retailers of liquor. Uh, the, the LRS stores I'm talking about are generalists. They tend to have a small selection of most spirits uh, and wine. Uh, probably not a lot of high-end labels of wine. But they do um, support uh, the micro-brew scene. And, and for someone like me, I'm there two or three times a week trying out new things, exploring brands. So that is the niche that they fill. Uh, but in a lot of ways, they, they're a loser under, under the reforms because under the old regime, the, the BCLC stores were closed on Sundays. They were closed on stat holidays. 
almost all of them did not sell beer cold, or if they did, it was a very small selection, and they kept limited hours. Now what we're seeing since April of this year is extended hours on holidays, extended hours on Sundays, and more uh, refrigeration units being installed. And, and I was speaking with one retailer just this past week who said they're being decimated. You know, on weekends, on long weekends, especially around holidays in the city, um, big events, Pride, for example, uh, they just aren't being supplied with the inventory they need. And they're competing with a behemoth organization uh, that they didn't have to normally compete with on Sundays. So BC Liquor, the government stores, they're open longer and they're providing chilled beverages. So the competitive advantage is lost. It's like they can't compete on price. Uh, and so they're left trying to scramble to find a reason to go there other than craft beer. Traditionally, it was they were open when the government stores weren't and you could get a cold beer. That's right. That, I mean, that was that was the, the compromise or that was the niche that developed for these private stores is they serve as consumers when the government liquor stores wouldn't for a variety of reasons. That is now eroding. And now they certainly can't compete on price. Only where I see them competing is they will continue to stock uh, micro-brewed local products uh, where breweries or the demand is not great enough or the brewery can't produce enough to make it onto the list, to make it onto the shelves of the government stores. But but how many micro-beers are you going to sell on a week or on a Sunday um, to compete with the lost advantage where you in a neighborhood, you used to have the monopoly on a Sunday? Wow, okay. So you've got people that hold a license that hold the lease, have been in business for a very long time that have essentially had the rug pulled from underneath them. In such a highly regulated market, you you can't look to these private retail stores and say, well, look, guys, you just have to be more clever. You just have to try and out-compete the perhaps less maneuverable BCLC monolith. You simply can't do that. You can't just transfer your license um, at the whim of a hat. You can't move locations. You can't increase your square footage without every step of the way um, the licensing branch approving that step. The only wholesaler available to a liquor retail store is um, the BCLC, their liquor distribution branch. And they set the prices. They set the prices. Now, technically speaking, the liquor distribution branch is separate from their retail arm. For whatever that's worth, they are notionally separate organization. But it's only one wholesaler. And if that wholesaler conveniently on long weekends ensures that all the BCLC operations are fully stocked on the hot selling items, and you as a small private store don't get your, your Palm Bay order that weekend, well. That's interesting too, this idea of, I mean, when you're talking about main list items, typically distributors like working with the largest purchaser, right? They get the best price, price is not an issue here, but in lieu of price, they get priority over stock. We were talking earlier about uh, the tool of setting prices or setting minimum prices. Has that affected these private retailers as well? Like, is that a, something that's really restricted their business or has it left things open? I mean, we were talking about uh, restricting businesses on on margins before we started recording. And I'm confused as to like how that's changed for these guys. Price all across the board, if, if you want to talk about losers, uh, Price has been the biggest loser for all British Columbians, uh, both the end price that consumers pay, but also um, bars, restaurants, retailers along the way. So the general consensus is everything has gotten more expensive 
since April. And I keep referring to April. April 1, 2015 was the date when a lot of the reforms from the YAP report came into place. They've been, they've been kind of trickling, but April 1 was a big one, especially when it came uh, to the government liquor stores, the hours they would keep, the announcement that uh, uh, refrigeration units would be installed. But on that date, a new pricing regime was entered. And what's become sort of a punching bag uh, sentiment is Susan Anton, who was a responsible minister at the time for these changes, said that a new wholesale pricing regime would, quote, level the playing field, unquote. And the idea was that previously, different licensees received different wholesale pricing with the liquor distribution branch. So depending on your license and depending on the type of, of beer, wine, or spirits you were selling, uh, you got a different you got a different price. That was confusing. And apparently it was unnecessary red tape and it was a bit of a bureaucratic hassle. And it might have been. However, for certain retailers, that was very important. And the private wine stores was a big one. They used to receive a discount of approximately 30% of, uh, that was their profit margin. So if you think of going to a, a liquor store, you see a bottle of wine and it costs $10, um, you know, the wine stores would get it for 7 Right. And they could sell it for 10 or they could sell it for 11 or frankly, they could sell it for 9 and they could out-compete uh, government stores. And that was great for them. Uh, that has all changed. Now there's a 16% discount all across the board for all sorts of licensees. And when I refer to the discount, it's the discount from the, the, the ticket price you see in a government liquor store. So it doesn't matter if I'm buying my Palm Bay from BC Liquor or from my local generalist store, or if somehow it showed up at a fine wine store, it would all be the same price no matter where I go. In theory, that's right. Now, a private liquor store may raise their prices because they have to deal with certain warehousing costs that you know, their warehousing on site, for example, as opposed right. to a, a BCLC that has a general warehouse. There are other costs. You know, uh, low margin, high sale items like Palm Bay, that's maybe not a great example. But a wine store, for example, where they're not allowed to just sell Palm Bay hand over fist on a hot, long weekend, and they're not able to sell, uh, you know, vodka on a Friday night, all they can sell is wine. They're restricted by the terms of their license. Their margins essentially were cut in half overnight. It was wonderful going to Vancouver and hopping into wine stores that were curating tasting experiences Absolutely. and were bringing in unusual wines that I would not have access to if I were working off the general list of the BC liquor uh, <clears throat> framework. And so so those guys, like, I don't know how they're going to make a, a run at it if they're running at a 16% margin no matter what's going on. But to bring it back full circle, this has been the history in BC. In the... Uh, I guess it would be the later part of the 20s into the 30s when, uh, the liquor, when the liquor branch decided that male and female patrons needed to be divided by a physical wall, guess what? The beer parlors had to erect walls. And when the branch years later said, well, we need a separate entrance as well, bars had to build separate entrances. And then when Prohibition happened in uh, 1917 in B.C., uh, brewers and distillers and bars had to, who had, who had obviously staff and inventory and, and built up premises, they had to shut down. So the, the history of BC, and, and I think uh, the history of Canada, has been uh, you know liquor boards making arbitrary decisions that affect small business, that affect the interests of, of consumers everywhere, and, and do so with, with relatively limited regard um, to the vested interests. I mean, largely this sounds like a win for most entities in British Columbia. It's this particular group of 
uh, of businesses that's being hit hard. But it seems like the regard is, you knew this was a heavily regulated sector when you got into it. So we could have turned around and said, we're not selling booze at all in this, this province, and that's sort of a deal. So for us to change the rules of the game without a whole lot of notice, well, like, don't do the wine business. Sell wood. Right. Sell something that we don't have uh, a huge interest in or public policy piece in regulating. How much notice were these stores given of these changes? I mean, they would have been involved in the consultation or at least invited in the fall of 2013. The report was issued in, I believe, January of 2014. So th- there would have been eight, eight or nine months of notice that change was coming. But as I understand it, uh, on April 1, when the announcements came out, it was pretty shocking for most individuals. And, and the, the truth is, you know, we talk about certain, you know, private businesses maybe lose. Um, but British Columbians lose as a whole and restaurants lose as a whole if um, high quality, interesting wine and beer is not being imported into the province. If there's not a demand, if, if the wine stores that you, that you mention, you know, adoringly in, in, in Vancouver no longer exist. With regulatory changes, is this something where a traditional business model is going to be squeezed out and a new business model is going to appear? So maybe like a wine online model or uh, maybe BC Liquor investing more in their in-store experience? I think the, the private sale of liquor will continue to thrive. Uh, you, we'll, we'll continue to see innovation like that. We're going to continue to see more craft spirits sold on site and sold in, in, in various liquor stores. Ultimately, I think retailers do need to be more creative. If they can't compete on price, try and compete on inventory to the best that they can. But ultimately, prices will just increase. Right. If, uh, if there is still demand for rare, interesting bottles of wine, um, the consumer just knows they're going to have to pay 5-10% more so that the private wine store can still get the margin, can still pay their staff, can keep the lights on. Um, but it's just the pocketbooks of everyone in BC who wants to enjoy that. Or drive to Alberta or Washington, I guess. Well, well, that's right. That's right. Or, or you drive the market elsewhere. And, and we have Free My Grapes is a lobby group that has been advocating for years now about the interprovincial transportation of liquor. And as, and as we talked about at the beginning of the show, uh, there is litigation ongoing in New Brunswick right now. I think the evidence is all in. We'll be waiting for a decision for a couple months now. A New Brunswick gentleman who filled up his trunk with beer purchased in Quebec, where, uh, as we know, uh, liquor is generally much cheaper. And uh, at the border, a couple Mounties were waiting for him to give him a, give him a $300 ticket. All right. So the consumer is a, it seems like hands down winner, provided they're not relying on $3 pints. And it sounds like retailers are going to have a challenging time, but producers are going to do extraordinarily well under this new framework. But I guess the only people that we are left to to speak to are our licensees. So people that own pubs or restaurants. Where are these guys left, Dan? These guys are in sort of a mixed bag. Uh, There's definitely been some wins for them. Uh, we're seeing uh, the limited return of tied houses in BC. So for listeners, a tied house is where a manufacturer, producer of spirits has an ownership stake in the business. Historically have been prohibited. Um, That's one of the classic pieces of, of liquor law is this break from uh, from producer and then agent or, or retailer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a post-prohibition mentality where uh, 
the government does not want to see any one manufacturer become all-powerful. And the government seems to think that that end can be defeated by ensuring that the breweries don't own the pubs that sell their product. Well, now, as a result of the YAP recommendations, um, breweries are entitled to have an ownership. And what we're seeing is, is a really fantastic nexus where uh, House Sound Brewing, for example, uh, in BC, uh, uh, owns the Devil's Elbow, which is a, a restaurant in, in, um, in downtown Vancouver. And for economies of scale and for vertical integration, it makes so much sense um, that their products can be directly couriered to the restaurant, kegs can be returned very easily, their products can be promoted to consumers, and uh, in my view, it's, it's healthy, it's fantastic. But we're seeing other changes too for retailers. For example, there's now a family food service designation. So if you're a liquor primary establishment, think of a pub, think of a legion, uh, the place where you'd normally go drink some beers after work or watch a game. Uh, on Sunday, if you want to bring the family there for a brunch, where normally minors are prohibited because it's a liquor primary establishment, if they have a brunch offering on the weekend, you can bring the family into a place uh, to the neighborhood pub. Oh, that's great. Expand dining opportunities in rural communities, I bet. Absolutely. And just a community feel generally. And if it's a place where, um, you know, parents and elders in the community rally around, why, um, you know, kids and youth necessarily need to be excluded there when liquor is not going to be the focus if it's 10 a.m. on a Sunday. Uh, it's, it's arcane um, that that would previously be the case. Uh, however, um, you know, with all of this uh, rapidly changing legal landscape, uh, there is confusion. Uh, I mean, liquor law, even for liquor lawyers, can be confusing. The legislation is not worded particularly well. The new, the, the new act is better. The old act uh, was a mess. Uh, regulations um, aren't necessarily always easy to apply in practice, even when they make sense in theory. Uh, and moreover, you have policy manuals that are several inches thick uh, that are not often reviewed by uh, licensees and retailers that explain how the branch uh, circles uh, some squares. And as a result, you get enforcement action. So how different is this than it was? I mean, it sounds like liquor regulation in British Columbia or across Canada was always very complex. And what I think I would be most concerned about as a, as a licensee is that I'm going or I'm leaving a set of rules that I knew and I'm heading into a set of rules that I don't know. And so I don't know when to be on side or how to be on side or the little transgressions that I can get away from. So what am I left with? Is that sort of where we're left? I, I think that's right. So um, recent cases that have been uh, in, in, in front of the Supreme Court of British Columbia on judicial review, uh, one case uh, related to a food primary licensee. So this is think of a restaurant the focus of business at a restaurant with a food primary license must always be the sale of food. However, as we know at restaurants, you can also sell liquor. So at what point uh, is a restaurant's quote-unquote focus changing from the sale of food to the sale of liquor, which is prohibited? And previously, uh, it was very unclear. Um, for example, do you always have to have food on the table when someone's drinking? Must someone have previously ordered food to serve them a second round? If someone wants to come in at the end of the night after they've eaten somewhere else, are they allowed to have a glass of wine at your bar? Uh, previously, that wasn't clear. Uh, and as a result, uh, there is, there's a case that, as I mentioned, went to the Supreme Court of British Columbia where a restaurant was fined by a liquor inspector because their kitchen appeared to be closed 
while people were having drinks. And this liquor inspector found that to be a problem. Uh, on judicial review, uh, the law was clarified a little bit. And as a result of that, we now have a policy that says uh, in BC, you can go into a food primary establishment and just order a drink and you don't have to get food so long as most of the people around you are eating food and, and the service of food remains the focus of the establishment. So it's a little bit more quantitative than qualitative. Okay. Uh, but certainly that's an area where if, you, if you're not up to date on the case law and you're not going to the government website and, and accessing the policy manuals on a regular basis, these are nuances that may escape you. Well, look, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Daniel Coles is a lawyer at Owen Bird LLP. Uh, he can be found on the web at bcliquorlaw.com and uh, on Twitter at Liquor and the Law. Beautiful. Thanks so much for coming in. Enjoy your time in Toronto. We hope to, to check in with you and once the new act comes down. That was Dan Coles, litigator at Owen Bird and principal at bcliquorlaw.com. Please join us next month where I'll be joined by Abir Day talking about open source seed and the Bauda Family Initiative on Canadian Seed Security, building seed sovereignty in Canada. Uh, until then, uh, I'd like to thank Shane McPherson for the lovely music. I hope you enjoyed, and we'll talk again soon.